Focus on the Family Canada's Hope Restored Marriage Intensive Program is a proven program designed to save couples from the brink of divorce. For over 15 years, Hope Restored Marriage Intensives have helped more than 4,500 couples, and over 80% of those surveyed are still together two years after attending. If you or someone you know is facing a crisis in their marriage, please call Focus on the Family Canada today at 1-833-999-HOPE or visit hoperestoredcanada.ca to find out more. I, I think that hospitals have a way of driving us to our knees. Um, huh. of, as patients, as caregivers, as physicians, and really churning up some very profound and cutting spiritual questions that we have very little support for in the hospital environment. That's Dr. Catherine Butler describing the turmoil that many families experience with loved ones in the ICU. Dr. Butler joins us again today on Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, last time we began an insightful conversation with Katie on a godly approach to end-of-life decisions, and I realize that you probably don't talk about this often, uh, but it's important. This is a heavy topic and uh, a good topic to have within the family particularly. Today we're going to hear additional you know, painful stories like we did last time. And if you missed it, get the download, uh, the app, and you can listen that way or get a hold of us. We'll give you a link or we'll get it to you somehow. Um, a highlight of our discussion yesterday was the reminder of the hope we have as believers um, we don't have to have a heavy heart about this transition from this life to the next. That's the whole point, isn't it? That we have eternal life in Jesus. And I was so grateful that Katie wove that into the discussion mm -hmm. yesterday. She's an impressive young woman, a doctor, a trauma physician, and uh, she's now a homeschooling mom, which I think is probably the most important job. And I was so delighted to uh, talk with her last time. Mm -hmm. If you missed part of it again, get the download. We're going to continue the discussion on advanced directives and those things that trauma surgeons see every day. Yeah, and last time, uh, Jim, for those who watch on YouTube, they saw me writing some notes. I do that uh, during interviews. And, and one of the notes I wrote down was we touched on advanced medical directives. And I thought, oh, I need to make sure ours are up to date. And then I thought, oh, we have elderly parents. I need to make sure that we know what their wishes are now before something happens. So really practical, very helpful conversation. More to come today. Uh, let me just say that Dr. Butler has captured so much of her wisdom and insights uh, in a great book. It's called Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. Of course, we have that here at Focus on the Family. Just call 1-800, the letter A in the word family, or stop by focusonthefamily.ca for your copy. Uh, Katie, last time you mentioned these four core principles, which really is the basis for the book. Can you uh, refresh us and those that didn't hear yesterday's program, tell us what those four principles sure. are. Sure. So a, a biblical approach to end-of-life care focuses on the fact that life is sacred and something that we're called to protect. And in that setting, in end-of-life scenarios, it prompts us to try to seek after treatments that have the potential to cure, to bring about full recovery. However, also, God ultimately has authority over our life and death, and death is something that will come to all of us, and he can work even through our death for the good of those who love him. Mm. And so while we are called to protect life and should pursue treatments with the potential for cure, at the end of life, when our measures don't promise recovery, we should be very careful about foisting treatments that are potentially futile on people. 
The third is that we're to have mercy and compassion and love our neighbor as ourselves. And when it comes to the bedside in these scenarios, that means having an awareness of the fact that our treatments can cause suffering, sometimes very marked suffering. Mm. And the fourth, which is the most important of all, is that we have hope in Christ that transforms death from something to be feared at all costs to something that through the cross brings us into eternal communion with the Lord. Yeah. And those are all great principles, and we covered them again in pretty good detail last time. So get the download. Um, Let's talk today a little bit more about ICU. You mentioned it yesterday. I can imagine that environment. You know, I come to work. We have a program. We talk to people. We help people. We do our own form of triage with people who call us that need help, and it's rewarding. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine being a doctor in the ER like you did for 10 years Mm -hmm. where you have people with tremendous physical issues, broken bones, car accidents, gunshot wounds, Mm -hmm. all those things going on. Mm -hmm. The intensity that you experience as a doctor, especially as a Christian doctor, Mm -hmm. trying to bring healing to people in that moment. Um, Describe that ICU environment like that in the ER, really. I I think that hospitals have a way of driving us to our knees. Um, as patients, as caregivers, as physicians, and really churning up some very profound and cutting spiritual questions that we have very little support for in the hospital environment. Um, And and part of my concern in talking about end-of-life care is because I think that there's very little support for patients and their families in wrestling through some of these spiritual issues. Um, in, In one study looking at terminally ill patients with cancer, talking about what they anticipate and the questions that they had about the end of life, 85% of them sa- said they had spiritual concerns, but only 1% said they'd been referred to chaplaincy oh, by yeah. their doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, very underutilized. Another study showed that uh, in conferences between family members and doctors about end of life care, that 80% of them brought up spiritual questions, and the most common response from the doctor was silence. Yeah. And rarely a platitude. But but never coming alongside and digging deeper and engaging, um, which is concerning because the, the care we receive and the choices we make depend upon our faith and our spiritual concerns. So it's an environment that's ripe with suffering, and I think the gospel and the cross lends meaning to it. Because when you know who God is, and when you know what he has done for us in Christ, and that Jesus came and laid down his life for us, who are so undeserving, you see glimmers through of his love, even in the heartache. I, I, in my most recent book that's coming out, one of those instances that still rests with me so heavily was a gentleman who had been in the ICU for months and months. And what happens when you're in the ICU for a long period of time is you start to accrue complications and it gets harder and harder mm. to get better. Right. You start to go into wasting, you devour your own muscle tissue, Uh, And you then start to stack on infections from the measures we give you, you know. So every line we put in risks risks giving you an infection. The longer you're on the ventilator, the harder it is to get off because your respiratory muscles atrophy. You know, so the longer you're in the ICU, the harder it is to get out. And he had been in that position. And finally, after months and months, he was at the point where we had nothing more to do for him. And he was actively dying. His wife had been at his side, praying over him, holding his hand, communicating with us for months throughout this. And I'd had so many discussions with her, some during which she was appropriately angry at us, some where she was stoic, some when she would be tearful. 
But I called her on this one particular evening and she knew from the sound of my voice right away that this was different, that he was dying. And so I said, can you please come in? And she could tell from the tone of my voice and she took a breath and she says, I'm 40 minutes away. How much time do we have? And this gentleman was bleeding into his lungs. We couldn't control it. His oxygen levels had gone from the 90s, which is normal, down to the 70%, which is incompatible with life. And his lips were blue. And we were doing what we could with the ventilator, but could not get his oxygen levels back up. And I looked at this and I said, he's going to probably pass in the next 10 minutes. So I just said, please just come. And so his nurse and his respiratory therapist and I worked just nonstop at his bedside. I had 19 other patients and I was having my other colleagues take care of them because I couldn't leave his bedside. He was that sick. And I'm suctioning him and doing, putting a camera down his airways and trying to suction the blood out. And the respiratory therapist is doing what he can. And finally, we just all stood back with our arms at our sides and said, there's nothing more we could do. Yeah. And at that point, I, all I could do was pray. And I just said, Lord, please, they've been through this ordeal. Let him hold on till she gets here. You know, please, whatever you need to do, if you need to part the cars like the Red Sea on Commonwealth Avenue, you know, whatever, please let her get here. And I watched the monitor and was stunned because for the next half hour, his heart continued. Just kept going. Yeah, with, with oxygen levels that were not compatible with life he should have arrested right away and then the moment she comes rushing into the icu she's got her coat zipped up to her chin still because it was november in boston and she rushes to the bedside she holds his hand and at that moment his heart stopped wow and so Mm. this was this we i would see this often but Mm. i would see it only because the bible convicts us and shows us about how god is good even in calamity. And it was this horrible situation. And yes, I would have wanted him to still live, and I wish we could have done more for him. But what a point of grace that he would answer that prayer and allow them one last handhold. So you see terrible suffering and you see horror. But when you really lean into Scripture and see that God's steadfast love for us endures forever, then you also see glimmers of his his love and mercy. And what a beautiful illustration of the bigger picture. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, our human existence is just that. It's just mm-hmm. what's here. Right. But the spiritual dimension is so much more yep. that God would hold on. Exactly. You know, and let them have that last moment. <laughs> and, you know, those heartbreaking situations like the one you just described, um, I've heard of stories where some people who are struggling with their health at end of life believe somehow they interpret that, that they have sinned against God, mm-hmm. that he's not answering prayer. And I'm sure you've seen that as a Christian yeah. doctor. How do you how do you counsel that person oh. that's really heaping on the guilt in the midst of their dying? Yeah. I, I had one mother of a teenage girl for whom I cared, and she had, had just an awful, awful course. She'd been in a car accident, and we got her through all the injuries, but she had horrible complications from a feeding tube that we placed. Mm. Um, and basically had her abdomen was locked in with infection that we never got a handle on. And after three months in the ICU, um, she very clearly was dying. And I had a conversation with her mom and her mom broke down and said, do you think God's punishing me because I don't go to church anymore? 
Wow. Do you think that's why she's dying? So just like you said, the kind of grief that you can bear and the guilt. But I think the Bible points us in another direction, that we don't know always why we suffer or why awful things happen. But we see so many examples throughout the Bible of God affecting good that we can't comprehend, even through our suffering. I think of John 11, when Lazarus is dying and Jesus receives word. And our expectation from the outside would be the only good thing would be for Jesus to go and heal him. Sure. Right? But he delays. And he tells his disciples, I'm delaying so that God's glory might be shown to you. And he arrives and Lazarus has died in his delay. And Mary and Martha say, if you'd been here, he would have lived. And there's that, that kind of grief. Why, why weren't you here? And then he raises Lazarus from the dead in the company of all these mourners who are gathered who can see God's glory mm. in Christ. You know, and so what you see is that we might not know the answer for suffering, but we do see that, like from Romans eight twenty eight, he works through all things for the good of those who love him, in even the bad moments. And because something bad has happened doesn't mean that we've done something to earn that punishment. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Do you worry about tomorrow? Does the future feel uncertain? Is the past too painful to bear? Focus on the Family Canada is here to help, so you never have to walk alone. Every morning, our staff lift up your prayer requests. If your burdens are too much to carry on your own, you can request a free, one-time call with one of our counselors at FocusOnTheFamily.ca today. That's FocusOnTheFamily.ca. We're here to help. Financial Moments with Tom Copeland. In Genesis 41, God enabled Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream where God warned there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. God instructed Joseph to help the people prepare by saving 20% of their grains, etc., during the seven years of plenty so that they would have sufficient food during the seven years of famine. Some people call this the Joseph Principle, which is a biblical financial principle that should be followed by everyone, including individuals, corporations, and governments. In James chapter 4, we are warned not to presume upon the future, which most people have done by spending all of their income and not saving for future needs. In reality, most people will experience a famine of some kind, such as a job loss, illness, etc., that could result in the loss of their income. In summary, save money on a regular basis so that you have a cushion of cash, Proverbs 21.20, to fall back on for when you encounter difficult times. To learn more, check out copelandfinancialministries.org. Again, copelandfinancialministries.org. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Katie, we're in the last quarter of our two days together, fourth quarter now. So let's <laughs> let's talk about physician-assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. We referenced it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now it's legal in seven states. There's probably two or three more states that are considering it. It's so, actually legal in 11 now. 11 yeah. now. So yeah. already it's moved to mm-hmm. 11. So in that context... Um, what, as a physician, what is your attitude when it comes, and as a Christian, more importantly, yeah. what's your attitude with physician-assisted suicide? Given even some Christians can rationalize this, mm-hmm. that this is humane. It's the right thing to do because we're prolonging life beyond what they would normally live. Right. So this is actually a good thing. Speak to that whole Yeah, issue. we need to be really careful. And and I, I think it's unfortunate that 
physician-assisted suicide is now reaching more widespread approval because I think people can then misconstrue what we're talking about in terms of limiting harmful treatments, right? Right. With, when a person is actively dying. When a person dying. is actively dying, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. With physician-assisted suicide, which is actively ending someone's life, okay? They're very different, but I, I worry that in the terminology that's used, people can misconstrue them. And I actually, I understand the compassion that people have and the stance that people can have looking at this and saying, oh, isn't this a way to love other people and be show them dignity? And I have all people had a reason, a personal reason to actually advocate for PAS. I'm going to say right now I don't. But I had a, a family member who suffered from um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease. Right. And so he was very fiercely independent and proud and aloof and saw suddenly his ability to eat, speak, feed himself, clean himself, gone. And in the setting of the, the turmoil that thrust him into, he took his own life. Hmm. Before he took his own life, he wrote a series of letters, one to his wife uh, encouraging her, one telling her to call 911 because he'd planned it ahead of time and knew she would find him. And the last, he wrote a note and said, support Kevorkian. And Kevorkian was the doctor from, I think it was 20 years ago. Yeah, who was Death. Yes, who was an advocate for euthanasia, which is a, a close cousin of physician-assisted suicide. So that was very present in my mind when I went to medical school. And I would see the kind of suffering we would inflict and, and sympathize and, and wonder. But as I would walk through the hallways and see my patients, like I could never give them pills to help them end their life. How, how could I do that? Huh. You know, and so inwardly, even before I was a Christian, even though I had a reason personally to advocate for it, I knew it was wrong. And when you look at what the Bible teaches us, you know, there is a difference between refusing treatment that's going to cause suffering and not help and actively ending your life with medication. Physician-assisted suicide is that. It's the doctor gives you medication, usually a high dose of a barbiturate that you take, and that is what ends your life, not the underlying illness that's troubling you. Um, Euthanasia, which is now legal in Canada, is actually giving a lethal injection. The physician actually gives a lethal injection to someone to end their life. Very different, and that's actively taking life and brings us right back to Mount Sinai with do not murder. There, there's a very clear distinction between the two. And it's important for us to be clear on this because the, the movement in favor of physician-assisted suicide likes to soften terms. So there was a Gallup poll done about 10 years ago in which they phrased, do you think it's okay for a doctor to help someone end their life without suffering? And 64% said yes. Right, it sounds like change, a good thing. Right, when you change the term to suicide, yeah. The approval went down to 15%. People know it's wrong, but when you monkey with the language, suddenly it sounds more acceptable. And that's what has happened is there is an active debate that physician-assisted suicide, which is the appropriate terminology, should be changed to medical aid in dying. Hmm. So it's just important for people to be aware this is not the same as transitioning to comfort measures or withdrawing from life support. It's something active. It's the active taking of a life. Right. It's so important, and I hope people hear that clarification. And again, there's more in your book mm-hmm. and that they can read. Um, let's move to those uh, directives that mm-hmm. uh, you've mentioned throughout yesterday and today. Um, let's give a, another quick recap of uh, the advanced directives. And then what is some of the best examples that you've seen that really have helped you as a doctor and the hospital 
uh, where families have thought this through and really, really uh, given you the direction you need. Yeah. You know, so nobody likes to talk about these issues. You can, there's no quicker way to shut up conversation during dinner than to bring up death. Like nobody wants yeah, to, right. It's, no, not, it's not party talk. Nobody wants to talk about it. And, and it, the questions make us uncomfortable, you know. But the problem is that when we don't talk about it with our families, we risk straddling them and abandoning them to, in some really hard situations. So what do I mean by that? 75% of us will not be able to vouch for ourselves at the end of life. Wow. Either because the interventions we're on will rob us, rob us of mm. a voice or we're going to be too sick to actually speak our wishes. However, only one in four people in America has an advanced directive on file guiding loved ones and what they should do. So it's actually the absolute inverse. Yes, yes. Right? So, mm. so most of us will not be able to speak for ourselves and will rely upon our, our loved ones next of kin to make decisions on our behalf. But only about one-fourth of us has actually given them instructions to yeah. do so. So advanced directives are, in, are to try to guide our loved ones when we can't speak for ourselves and also to ensure that our own wishes are respected. And they come in a number of flavors. The first thing is appointing a healthcare proxy or a durable healthcare power of attorney, which is someone that you appoint to advocate on your behalf and make decisions when you can't speak for yourself. Yeah. And it's very important to do this. Because, uh, number one, you want to make sure that you have discussions with that family member and that they are comfortable making decisions for you right. and that they know your wishes. Um, and also because if you have one that you've specifically designated, it can alleviate some of the turmoil between family members when disagreements come up. So if you've had a discussion with your, your son or daughter and another son or daughter disagrees with what's decided upon, that person that you've designated can at least say, I know this is what mom or dad would want. We talked about it. Yeah. So it, it helps to equip them. You have a powerful story about a woman who was prepared to make decisions for her sister. Mm -hmm. And I think you express that as one of the better examples of how to do this. What happened? Yeah. So I had to um, help out a colleague in the operating room who was in crisis. Um, he was caring for a woman who had a large tumor in her pelvis, and in trying to excise it, there was a network of blood vessels adhering to it, and they all tore. Mm. And so she spilled her blood volume into her pelvis in the span of a few minutes. So he called for help. I arrived, and the anesthesiologist was doing CPR, and we worked together and packed the pelvis and gave several units, not several, several liters of blood, um, stabilized her enough sent her to interventional radiology to see if we could stop the bleeding with catheters. Could not do it. Came back to the operating room, packed again, brought her up to the intensive care unit where I had to a third time go in and try to stop the bleeding. And it had been hours and hours of us trying to, to save her. It was very clear that we were losing and we were not going to be able to. And I had talked to her sister throughout this and she understood and was very nervous and asked the appropriate questions. But I called and she could hear from the tone of my voice that we were at the end. And so I said, please come in now. And when I went to see her in the waiting room, she looked like her sister. She looked like my patient. Mm -hmm. She's sitting there jangling her keys. And for I had this one eerie moment where I, my mind did a flip on me, and I thought, maybe she's okay. <laughs> um, but sat down and was trembling because we've been working so hard, and it's hard to admit that, no, we can't, we can't save her. And she stopped me mid-sentence and said, 
my sister wouldn't want any of what you're doing right now. And I was so surprised by the conviction with which she said it and the calm with which she said it. And she had tears in her eyes and she said, I, I, I don't want to let my sister go. I don't want to lose her. But we talked about this so many times. We watched my mom die in the ICU and it was horrible. And we so clearly talked together about what would be okay for us and what wouldn't. And she wouldn't want anything of what you're doing right now. Mm. You know, she has faith in God and just let her go to be with God. Can I see her before you let her go? And so she went and she spent her last moments with her sister. But she said, she's like, you know, I don't want to lose her, but I, at least I know what she wanted. Yeah. And so it just shows that the power, if you have these discussions as difficult as they are, it can equip our loved ones in moments that are going to be horrendous for them, that are going to be sad, that are going to cause them grief and fear. But at least they have the solace to say, I know what my loved one would have wanted, and I've respected that. Yeah. And it can bring peace in a situation that's otherwise horrible. Mm. Katie, this has been so good. I mean, we have flown by two days, and I hope people have appreciated, maybe not enjoyed, but appreciated the discussion. I, I appreciate your courage in writing it as a physician. Let me, um, let me end with this question, because I'm so impressed by who you are. It brings me to tears. I mean, you just are such a phenomenal individual and uh, you know becoming a physician and the way you've applied it and the way you work scripture into everything yeah. it's really refreshing that um, your science has not voided your faith huh. so let me give you the last word to talk to people about that intersection of faith yeah, yeah. I, I would just say that these situations are so harrowing and they can bring us to just the deepest anguish and afterwards, whether or not things have gone smoothly, when you make a decision for a loved one, you can be struggling afterwards with questions of why and did I do the right thing and guilt. And I would just say in all things, just turn to Christ because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. And he reminds us, even in these horrible situations where we're dealing with death and illness, that although our hearts and our flesh may fail, He's the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And no matter what assails us, we have forgiveness and hope in him. That is well said. Uh, Katie Butler, Dr. Butler, thank you for being with us. This has been so informative. Thank you. And for the listeners and the viewers, uh, this is the kind of resource you need on your shelf, and you need to be looking at it, Mm -hmm. reading it together as a couple, and talking about what it is you need to plan for for those end-of-life issues. Or maybe it's something you need to help, again, with your grandparents or your parents. They're aging, and you need to make decisions, maybe sooner rather than later. And as we often do, you know, we want to make this available to you. So order uh, Katie's wonderful book uh, directly through Focus on the Family Canada. And when you do, all the proceeds go right back into helping other families throughout Canada. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Butler's book, once again, is called Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. We'd love to get a copy to you. And uh, one more thing that we say often here, Jim, is that we have caring Christian counselors. Uh, We've talked through some tough stuff here, and if you need to talk with someone about your circumstances, uh, schedule a time with one of those counselors, or get the book and donate as you can when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family. 
Next time, Shanti Feldhahn offers encouragement for your marriage based on lessons she's learned after interviewing hundreds of couples who are truly happy in their relationship. There is a, a principle here that is incredibly important about looking for the bright spots and seeing what those role models, the people who have the happiest marriages, have to teach us. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.